As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Bet that you don't want none. If you want some, come and get some. 500, let's lock it in on the next one. Greedy for it, I roll it out. Coming June 26th through the 28th to US 131 Motorsports Park in Martin, Michigan, IHRA will, will host the Sportsman Spectacular, offering tremendous payouts and a little something for everyone, no matter what it is that you race. Stay tuned for more details later in the show. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at bteracing.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast where we sometimes discuss Danny the Delaware Destroyer Bastianelli and Stephanie Bustin Nass. Welcome to the show. Um, we got a, we've got a really fun, uh, entertaining, and hopefully insightful episode on tap today. A little bit later on, I will be joined by Jeff Miles. Jeff is currently the, uh, the track manager at Orlando Speed World down in Florida. Um, and I'll get a little bit more into his background, but we had a really um, in-depth, wide-ranging um, conversation that, that we'll get to momentarily. Before we do... Um, I wanted to just briefly touch base on some of the events uh, over the course of the last weekend in sportsman drag racing, predominantly, I think, highlighted by the, uh, the Ultimate 64 
which was at Kill Care this year. Uh, great turnout at the Ultimate 64. There's 300 plus cars. Uh, Kelly Astis, uh, longtime promoter. This is the first time that, uh, that that he's promoted the event solo after the passing of his partner, Randy Helton. Uh, so I'm sure that that was an emotional experience uh, all the way around. But uh, the turnout was so good that Kelly actually increased the purses uh, essentially across the board, which is, as, as you know, almost unheard of uh, across the sportsman drag racing landscape. So that was cool to see. Uh, on the racetrack, Cody McDaniel was the big winner. He becomes the first driver in the history of the Ultimate 64, which spans, I think, well over a decade, right? 13, 14 years at this point. He's the first driver to, uh, to win the $50,000 to win main event twice and as i said before they actually increased the purse of this year's event i believe they bumped that all the way up to sixty-four thousand dollars to win so congrats to cody he defeated lester adkins in that final lester another racer that has been on a tear uh here at the at the start or the the restart perhaps more applicably of 2020 other winners from the weekend uh at kilker basically uh, a who's who in list of, uh, of, of, of the names that you would almost expect to see grace the winner circle. Chris Bayer won the opening 10 grander and then uh, in the shootout races that, uh, that followed the 50 winners included Kenny Underwood, Tyler Bohannon, and Steve Riggins. So no huge surprises there. The NHRA tour made stops at three different um, locations on the Lucas Oil Series. A Division One race in Epping, New Hampshire, Division Five in Denver, Colorado, Division Four event in Houston. I won't go through bit by bit, blow by blow, but a couple of standout performances, uh, both from Houston and from Denver. Jeff Lopez and Craig Maddox, who are actually two guys that that run a, a relatively unique combination of classes. It's not often that you see a driver competing in two classes and those two classes being super gas and stock eliminator. That's kind of an odd combination, right? Um, those are two guys that do that. And they actually both had I, essentially identical weekends. Uh, Jeff at Houston and, uh, and Craig Maddox at Denver. Each of those drivers respectively won the super gas Wally and finished runner-up in Stock Eliminator. So I wanted to highlight them. Um, that's obviously a super impressive performance uh, in, in, in two separate divisions in relatively unique classes. One other note that I thought was worth mentioning from Houston specifically, the top sportsman final was a father-son matchup, made all the more special because it was Father's Day. It was Alan Firestone over Kyle Firestone. So um, that's one that will definitely go down into the memory banks for that team. Um, one other thought, thing that I thought was interesting that I wanted to, uh, to bring up from that Houston event, um, before we get into today's interview and, and conversation with Jeff Miles, is uh, I guess is a, a bit of a, a scare, perhaps for for lack of a better term. One of the um, the the track workers, I believe, a, a divisional employee, uh, had uh, had fell ill at dur during the early stages of the event, and um, upon leaving the facility. Um, apparently went to the hospital got, or, or got tested and tested posit positive for COVID. And uh, she had 
interacted with many of the tower staff and presumably at least some of the racers. Um, so this brought about an interesting dilemma for, for Terry Capps, for that staff, um, and something that I, I guess is um, uh, inevitable uh, to some extent, given the, the times that we're living in, that I'm sure to some extent they had prepared for and or thought about. Um, but uh, just interesting to see how it was handled. It, it is my understanding reading through the release that um, several of the, the event staff were you know, essentially sent home, asked to quarantine, had to be replaced. Um, Trey himself, the Division Four director, had, uh, had had contact with this woman. He elected to stay and run the event, you know, as the division director, but essentially, my understanding, isolated himself in a, in a room or a suite in a tower and, and ran everything via radio communication. Um, and then, then they urged any, any racers that had had contact um, with the, the, the woman who tested positive to, you know, leave the facility to quarantine. I don't, it seems like this was handled as well as it possibly could. I just found it interesting to bring up here on the podcast because I feel like, you know, having raced now for the last three weeks personally, and Jed had said this um, on the podcast previously, that racing seems to be the one element in life where when we go racing, things feel quote unquote normal. Like you, you kind of forget that we are living through a, a pandemic. Like it feels like racing did a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. Right. And, um, and I would agree with that after having raced, uh, you know, for a few weeks now myself, like when we get to the racetrack, it, it not, there's very little that feels different. Right. And perhaps this is just a reminder to all of us that, while we feel that way and, and, and racing is a, is a way to express our freedom and feel as though, oh, all right, you know, like there is an end in sight and, and, and we're going to get through this. I feel like situations like this are just a reminder to all of us that we are in fact living through a, a pandemic and there are concerns and there are different protocols that go along with this. So uh, I thought it was interesting to, to note that if nothing else. Today's conversation, Jeff Miles. If you are not familiar with Jeff, his family has had owned uh, Carolina Dragway, Jackson, South Carolina, which is just over the border from um, Georgia, from the time that he was nine years old up until uh, two years ago. And um, I don't know exactly how old Jeff is, but I believe he's in his early to mid forties. So was very much, uh, that, that racetrack was a big part of his upbringing. And then ultimately, uh, Jeff and, and his sister and, and his family in general um, operated that racetrack for the, the better part of his life. And then, uh, then sold the track in 2018. And Jeff just recently took a job. He is now the track manager at Orlando Speed World um, in Orlando, Florida. And over the course of that time, that life essentially sp spent within our sport, Jeff has had the reason I wanted to have him on is because he provides such a broad perspective on racing in general, because he's worked with, you know, behind the scenes, he's put on big races. He's put on big dollar bracket races. He's put on massive grudge events. Um, he has worked with both major sanctioning bodies in, you know, closely. Um, he's worked with several of the major promoters, whether from, from Donald Long to uh, the B&M series to you name it, right? 
and beyond just what he's done with with racetracks, um, Jeff's a racer. He's part of a family of racers. He's been a, a team manager. He's just able to to see this sport through a number of different lenses. And those are the people that I love to have on the show because they challenge me to think outside of my box and hopefully challenge you to, to think outside of yours. So in this conversation, we catch up a little bit with Jeff, who he is, how he got to where um, he is. Um, we talk about the challenges of accepting this new position amid a pandemic and what uh, he's dealing with right now. Uh, in Orlando and, and what he sees on the horizon for that racetrack and his position and in large part our, our, sport, our sport as a whole. We talked about um, the big dollar bracket scene, the, the point that it is elevated to, what potentially might be on the horizon, what are the, what are the hurdles, the drawbacks, what are the potentials within big dollar bracket racing, and then um, we kind of reined it into it. From that, we, we moved into the red hot, you know, topic of cheating. And Jeff weighed in on that as well. Like I say, it's just, uh, I think it's really introspective conversation. It made me think, uh, hopefully it will make you think as well. So without further ado, Jeff Miles. As advertised, joining me now on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, it is Jeff Miles. Jeff, I have known you for probably 15 plus years, or as they say in the South, I've been knowing you for 15 That's plus right. years. Um, in just in that period of time, you've worn a lot of different hats. And I don't feel like I necessarily know the backstory as to how you got to where you were when we first met. So give me the Cliff's Notes version. And for our listeners that may not be as familiar with you, um, where you come from in, in racing and how you got to where you are. Well, uh, 1984, my dad purchased Carolina Dragway. And uh, at, back then it was Jackson Drag Strip. And um, I'm nine years old at the time, running around, playing in the sand and doing everything a nine-year-old's not supposed to do. And uh, basically watched for a couple of years and dad's like, boy, you got to go to work. So from that point forward, I went to work and alongside him with my sister, we, and my stepbrother, we run the place and kind of built it up to where it was a nice household name. My dad passed away in 03 and it all fell in our laps and um, moved forward to trying to build the place to the next level. We decided to go IHRA, uh, I guess at that time, national event racing. And uh, that's where I met you. I met a lot of guys. I, I met a lot of my friends, um, how I got to know a lot of people and, and honestly said that, Hey, if, if these people are going to come support us, we got to go support them. So we went out on the road racing and it, it was, that was a great thing meeting a lot of people. We built our, uh, IHR bracket program into to a big deal. Um, our divisionals always had 300 cars. Um, I've always followed you just because your success and I'm trying to watch you learn, watch you and learn from you. So, yeah, that's uh, where we're at. I, my business got to be in a great spot where it would run itself. I had great employees, um, been a fireman 23 years. I always wanted to be a police officer, and um, the opportunity presented itself, so I took it for 10 years. I was a police officer as well, 
And uh, 2018 came along, and uh, someone wanted to purchase Carolina Dragway, and I really didn't want to sell, but we ended up selling kind of a semi-retirement deal, and I thought, gosh, I'm bored. I want something to do. And um, Wade Rich had left Orlando Speed World, and I called Ozzy one day, and he said, hey, call me tomorrow. We'll talk. So I, I like to say it all kind of worked out like it's supposed to. Somebody out of the blue showed up to look at my house on Sunday, bought it on Tuesday. I talked to Ozzy on Monday and got offered a job on Friday. So it, it's just meant to be. And here I am in Orlando, and I, it's probably the best move I've ever made in my life. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. So current track manager, Orlando Speed World, um, over that that this time period, or basically your whole life. I mean, you guys purchased Carolina when you're when you're nine years old. Like you've been in this thing, and as I've mentioned, worn a bunch of different hats. That's that's the main reason that I wanted to have you on is because I love talking to guests that have perspective, right? Having seen this from multiple angles. In your case, as a track owner, track operator, team owner, racer. Uh, you've seen this from a, from uh, through a number of different lenses, and then I just like your experience in general as a as a track owner, operator, manager in dealing with both sanctioning bodies, most of the big name promoters over a, a pretty wide spectrum of types of events, right? And sure. just having seen this thing progress, this thing being sportsman drag racing in general over the last you know close to four decades now so i don't really know where to start I, I i do want to tug on a string i had no idea that in conjunction with operating carolina dragway you were a you were a full-time police officer for a decade you said yes sir how was that i'm actually act? still a police officer really yeah it's uh it was tough we i worked 14 days a month um and each of those 14 days were 12 hour days and um Sadly enough, that's probably what cost me my marriage. But, um, you know, between that and me being stupid. But anyway, um, that's a whole different story there. Uh, anyway, they, uh, it, it was tough. It really was. And, but you, if it's something you want to do, you always find a way to, to do it. And that's with anything in life. Uh, just a, another form of this perspective that I, that I want to get into, because I just find that fascinating. I, I, ne I never, uh, I never knew that. Well, like what, given the, the, the nature of today's world, and I don't want to get completely off topic, but obviously the, the police in general are under greater scrutiny and, and a magnifying glass than ever. Like what, I'm just curious, what is your, as a, as a cop, like what is your, your stance? Is there anything that you want to use this platform to say? Man, <laughs> there, there's some bad cops out there. Sure. I know the cops in this world, all, we all took the same oath and 97.5% of all of them are great guys who are there to do a job, but they get just scrutinized over and over. And it's hard to do your job these days. It really is. Um, right towards the end of me leaving, it was, it had gotten to where, you know, you couldn't cuss at anybody. You couldn't say anything bad, things like that, because they'd fire you on the spot. You know, the, the criminals had more rights than we did, and it was just become too hard of a deal to do it. And I was like, you know, it's 
this is a good time to get out. Yeah, I imagine like, <clears throat> I know that the parallels aren't exactly the same, but for years, my, my wife was a school teacher and similarly, like the, the, the politics oh. overtook the, the, the joy and the, I think, good intentions that uh, that probably all teachers have at least getting started uh and made it made it difficult to enjoy that job so it sounds sounds similar i dated a lady for after my divorce for three or four months that was a, a vice principal assistant principal of a middle school there is no way in this world i would rather be a cop three times again before i did that unique challenges on both sides no doubt okay so Let's get into, let's start it, 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 in your current role at Orlando. You accepted that position amid the, the kind of in the heart of the, the COVID pandemic, correct? Yes, sir. We were dead in the middle of it. What, I, I guess, how big a factor was that for you in, in stepping into the role? It sounds like a, a dream opportunity just, you know, at, a, at an interesting time, I guess, to say the least. And then kind of transitioning out of that, What's your take in terms of, maybe the best way to put this is, what is the biggest challenge that the pandemic has posed, maybe specific to Orlando, and if you want to take it to a bigger picture to, to sports and racing in general? Well, in South Carolina, yeah, they had some rules in place where you had to do this, you had to do that, you couldn't open, you, but you could have testing. And you come to Orlando, and I was like, we can do this guys. And they're like, no, we can't do anything. The County won't let us. And that's been some of the challenge that I've had here is they have so many laws here that we have to 100% follow. And if not, they'll just rather, they, they called today right before this call here and said, Hey, we just let you know that Orange County has passed the ordinance where everybody must wear a face mask. If you're going to be in this County. Now, obviously you can't make your employee or your, customers wear them but every employee you have must wear a face mask or we're going to shut you down so hey you know that's some of the challenges south carolina wasn't that way um we had an event two weeks ago that typically draws in a very very large amount of people and uh, it was at the round track and we call it crash arama but it's night of destruction school bus figure eight racing all kind of crazy things and um, we, we only sold like 4,000 tickets online and sold about 1,000 more at the door. And there were people mad because they couldn't get in. But we had to only go 50% because that's all the state's letting us do right now. You know, and I don't know if any of you have been to Florida lately, but as you drive into the state of Florida, you have to go through the way station. And they actually asked you what state you were coming from. And if you say New York or Louisiana, they turn and make you go back and do a COVID-19 test or you don't come in. So Florida's really tough on it right now. It's, it's uh, just from the, from the outside. And I'm sure that you're seeing the same thing. Our listeners are seeing the same thing. I don't know if, if fascinating is the right word because the, the connotation around fascinating is usually a positive thing. And I don't know that this is a positive thing. It is fascinating. The discrepancy, then you bring it up from say South Carolina to Florida in the application of, I guess, law or at the very least uh, mandates from one state to the other. And, and the, 
the lack of consistency they're in. Like, I, I guess there is reasoning for that to some extent, but it seems kind of bizarre to sit back and look, you know, just through a racing lens as from state to state as to what's allowed and acceptable and, and what isn't. And even in South Carolina, you know, I'm, I'm in Florida watching back home. Obviously it's the place that my sister and I built. So I'm watching what goes on in Carolina all the time and they're not opening the gates. And, and we're like, man, what's in the world? And I, I text back and forth to some of the guys that work for me and they're like, we just can't open right now. I said, but Darlington's open. Darlington's running. They have a bracket race with 500 cars. And he's like, but the county told us, no, we can't open. I was like, man, you sure about that? And I don't know what the whole deal was, but Darlington could open, Carolina couldn't. It, it was, you know, I don't know what was going on down there, but it was very different county to county down there as well. Yeah, and that's the, it's not, you know, I said state to state. It's not just state to state. It's it's one jurisdiction to the next. Uh, it is. It's it's uh, it's interesting, bizarre, fascinating, however you want to put it. What do you feel like, uh, I mean, I, I get this sense that, that racing in general the racing community, like it, it feels like we are coming out of or have come out of the pandemic. Who knows what the future holds? You know, we see the rates spiking or what have you. Like uh, your your guess is as good as mine, listeners. Like if there's one thing 2020 has taught me, it's that uh, who knows what happens next, right? But uh, I'm curious, like what um, what do you see going forward? from through the lens of sportsman racing because i feel like there are pockets of our industry and and specifically your industry as a as a as a track manager as a as a event promoter there are pockets that will essentially be unfazed there are some forms of competition and some types of races that i think will could be dramatically affected and then at the same time um i feel like there are in the in the aftermath of something like this, or perhaps even during something like this, there are always new opportunities that present themselves that may not have before. Uh, along those lines, I know that's a pretty broad spectrum of a question, but what do you see on the horizon as we as we move forward? We had this discussion the other day with myself and a few of my employees, as well as Ozzy. You know, where do we go from here? What changes? What stays the same what's never going to be the same and and all of that is is a constant fluid deal it never stays the same um i i think face masks you're going to see most of the time by a few people um who would have thought a year ago that we could even be having a discussion about having to stay six feet apart from somebody you know i mean gosh we go to the baseball field and and they try to stack you on top of each other to get in there to get as many people as they can in the seats. But now you can't do that. So what changes, what stays the same? I don't know. I, I'm scared to think, honestly. Um, I'd like to see the togetherness that's come back and how the racers are supporting the tracks now because there were so many options before. And, and then all of a sudden we don't have any options and guys are like, Hey, man, it sure is nice to go back racing. I'd like to see that stay that way because, you know, if we don't support the tracks, we don't have a thing to do. Absolutely right. Uh, and it seems like, I mean, we transition in and out of that. Like I know we, Jed and I made some 
poke some fun in the last podcast is it wasn't six weeks ago. We were all saying like, give me six hours between rounds and a poorly prepped racetrack any day of the week. Like I'd love to be back. Well now by and large, we're back and we're all finding something to complain about. So <laughs> in a way nothing's changed, but I think overall you're right. Like if anything, the time off gives us some appreciation, some gratitude for perhaps some of the things that we had always taken for granted. And I hope that if we learn anything from this, as you said, um, that, that that is kind of a lasting um, takeaway. It would stand to reason, at least in the immediate future, that um, events primarily driven by spectator revenue would be the, the most difficult sell or the, the most precarious position going forward. Um, a, would you agree with that? And B, what are some maybe maybe very common, but perhaps outside the box type events that you feel like could actually, there, there may be a market for now that there might not have been six months ago. And I, I'll say now that spectator driven, spectator driven events right now is probably swing the gates open and you're going to hit a grand slam. People are so fed up with sitting mm. at home mm -hmm. and I know I am. Um, I'm glad to go out there and bust my butt in this 100-degree Florida heat every day just because I don't want to sit at the house. And, um, you know, we saw that with our night of destruction last week, a week before last, whenever it was. Great, great crowd. Um, we sold a ton of beer. There were people, some social distancing going on, but most people were like, look, we're here to have fun. We have our mask on. We're not worried about social distancing. But then I had one guy that said, look, where can I go sit? I don't have any social distance. And he went and sat in another place and he was happy. But I think if you swing the gates open with a, something that the, the family can bring the kids to, and it's an affordable price, you're going to get everybody there. Um, and, and that affordable price is like a $20 adult ticket versus 25. That $5 extra makes a big difference to a family. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't really even thought about it through that lens. Like there is less competition for the entertainment dollar than there's ever been. Right. Right. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, you, I, I think, I think you could go out here with a, I don't even know if you brought in two street outlaws and we all fuss, fuss and, and play games about the street outlaws, but you brought two street outlaws in right now, you'd probably have 20,000 spectators right off the bat. And what is your current limitations at Orlando? You said it's 50% capacity? It's what it's been, yes, sir. It's supposed to go to 75%, but we haven't gotten there yet. However, it depends on how you read the whole That's deal. That was my next question, right? You're an outside venue, so you can be 100%, but, you know, do we want to go push that and get closed down? No, we don't. So, you know, we stay at the 50% deal, but you got to think Orlando can seat 20,000 people. So at 50%, that's still 10,000 folks. And, you know, it, if I put 10,000 in there every week, I'm happy. Yeah, that's a huge crowd. Now, how is that written or how, I guess, do you interpret it? Is that 50% uh, of like grandstand seating capacity or total capacity? Like, I feel like there's an opportunity for a lot of gray area there. There's a ton of gray area. And how we look at it is 50% of your seating capacity. So if you can bring your truck in and back it up to the gate, that's room for four people, so to speak. So that's kind of how we look at it. So we look at, we say, all right, 20,000 people is our max we could hold safely. 
Um, we've had more than that, but that's our safely what we can hold. So we stick with 10,000. Gotcha. And you had said that in your county, the uh, masks are mandated. Like what you, you, and you had mentioned you don't have any control necessarily over your patrons or, or customers. Say of the, the spectators at the big event at the round track, like what percentage would you say were masked? 15. Right. I figured it was fairly low. Not many. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the culture, the atmosphere there is, is similar to really to what we're seeing here in Illinois. The similarly, masks are quote unquote mandatory. And it just, it's funny to me. It depends on where you go. Um, like I actually, I went to three different grocery stores one day hunting things down and from one grocery store to the next, it was maybe 10% masks to 50 to 95. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, they're, then they're within 10 miles of one another. You know, it's, it's kind of bizarre. And, and I guess speaks somewhat to the, the divide of the, of the city or the, perhaps the, the beliefs of different economic statures to, to go to different groceries. I, I don't know, but it, it's amazing how much it varies here. But I would say by and large, the atmosphere here is similar to what you talked about is that uh, the people are just tired of being repressed or whatever word you want to use, tired of being stuck at home, told what to do, like just wanting that yep. freedom. So then the, and the rebellion. Just before, just before I left South Carolina, uh, I was, you know, South Carolina where I lived was right on the line of Georgia and Augusta, Georgia. So I was in Augusta getting some stuff and I had to run by Lowe's and I pull up to Lowe's and it's 75 deep out the door waiting to get in. And I was like, what in the world? And they're like, we're only letting five people in at a time. I was like, heck with this, I'll go to North Augusta, which is in South Carolina. And it's only 10 minutes away. So I scoot across the river, walk in and there must be 500 inside the store. Nobody's got on masks. They're just having the time of their lives. And it's like, you know, one state to the next, which is only 10 miles apart. And it's totally different. Yeah, no, it's, it's bizarre. What, um, I'm, I'm curious just to hear your perspective on this because, uh, Carolina dragway was, uh, it seemed to me from the outside, like pretty big business. And obviously Orlando significant business in terms of, of racetracks, right? Uh, some of the smaller tracks that, as they go through or have gone through, I guess, to some extent, the effects of this pandemic, like there was pretty widespread speculation that whatever the case has been, or maybe whether it's, um, you know, two months of, of basically having the gates locked or in some cases, perhaps four or five, that a lot of the smaller tracks just simply wouldn't be able to weather that, that they were typically week to week to begin with. What is your perception now? And I know that the, the track operator owner network is pretty tight. Do you feel like we will see a lot of tracks uh, suffer isn't the right word, but I mean, that this, this tends, this ends up being the demise of some of the smaller tracks. Do you think that that'll be widespread or no? Absolutely. I feel it will be. Um, had I still been running Carolina with my sister and this happened, it would have devastated us. Uh, no doubt, because, you know, we, we were, I'm not going to say a small track. We were a decent-sized track, nowhere near what Orlando is, is in terms of the bottom line. But we didn't have tons of money in the bank to save for a rainy day because we were constantly trying to do things to keep it upgraded. We needed to pave the top end. We knew that. We were trying to save for it. But it, it just – it was a little different time, day and age then. And Orlando, 
Ozzy has done very well in his career. He has he owns three racetracks. Um, he has just been fortunate enough to save. So none of his guys lost a paycheck during that whole time. He was able to survive. It was a little tough on him, but he was able to survive. So some of these real small racetracks, and I'm not even going to call any names, but some of the small racetracks are going to catch the devil because, I mean, there's one guy that's in South Carolina, great friend of mine, great track operator, and he has caught the devil everywhere he's turned. And I'm sure this was almost like the final straw for him, but I hope not. You know, I see that he's doing some test and tune stuff, but I know it had to hurt him. He he called me one week. He said, man, look, I got $20 in my checking account. He's like, you know, I, I, I don't know where to turn. I said, I'll do what I got to do to help you, you know, and, and he was he, – he didn't, he didn't want any money. You know, he just wanted to vent. But just you will see some great track operators and great small racetracks that'll just have to shut the doors. Unfortunately, I tend to agree. And I don't feel like there's been a ton of a spotlight on that just yet because it feels like if you're struggling or um, perhaps not quite uh, able to, to open for competition just yet, there's so much, as we had talked about, um, discrepancy and disparity in local regulations that uh, outside of maybe the, the core group of local racers, people don't necessarily think a whole lot about it, but there's, there's some of those racetracks that may not reopen, you know, or, or may not reopen under the same ownership and who knows what, what the future of that brings, because you can speak to this better than I can, but if you were looking to just strictly make a business investment, I, I think that there are much easier jobs to purchase yourself than purchasing a racetrack. A racetrack and a restaurant is two things that you, you know, <laughs> You just don't want to get into if you don't have to. And everybody says, gosh, you get to, you get to race for a living. Yeah, I do. But I don't get on Saturday and Sunday. I don't get to go to the lake like y'all do. And, and I, I, you know, I don't get days off. I worked 17 days straight in Orlando just because we were so busy. I finally got two days off, and that was yesterday and the day before yesterday because I spent it with my daughter for Father's Day at, at my other beach house in Newport Ritchie. So. Yeah, no, you don't get a lot of days off. Whatever it is that you love in life that is a, you know, a, a passion and becomes a hobby or whatever, I don't care what that is or how passionate you are about it. When you have to do it every day for you know, 12, 14, 20 hours a day, I don't care how much you love it. It, it becomes a job. And, and, and there's nothing worse than and I don't mean to just paint a bleak picture. It's, it's, it's still the reason that I race. Obviously it's the reason that you work at a racetrack, but there is nothing worse than getting into getting to the point where something that you love, you dread doing because you're just tired of it and burn out. You know I mean? That's a, that's an odd feeling. I've been there with racing. I'm sure that you've been there with managing the track. Um, it's, it's, I guess it's just not all sunshine and roses. Is that fair? And that's exactly right. And that's where I was with, my sister and I both were there in 2018 with Carolina. We were just burnt out and we're, we're both right now going, God, why did we ever sell that place? We're stupid, but you know, it is what it is. Um, it was God's plan and here I am. So I'm interested because I know you've had your hands in, in so many different things and so many different aspects of racing, but I feel like uh, a shared passion between you and I is in the big dollar bracket scene. And similarly, 
you have you've seen this from all angles, whether it's promoter, track operator, racer, etc. I guess the obvious first question that you would probably expect is, did you ever dream ten years ago, five years ago, that we would see purses escalate to the level that we're seeing in 2020? Absolutely not. Um, I remember the first million. A uh, good friend of mine, Kenny Nice, he went to it in his little old Vega wagon, and that that was you know he went on an open trailer and that's all he talked about was going to the million. I'm like, boy, that's two thousand dollar each for you, crazy, and it's five hundred dollars to buy back. He's like, yeah, but what if I win? I was like, well, you're not gonna win a million dollars. You'll never win a million dollars racing. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's. I mean, the whole progression probably over the last decade has been, um, I guess, unexpected. Like it's progressively ramped up and never really turned back. But specifically now within the last couple of years, and now we have legitimate, you know, million dollar purses on the horizon. I'm curious, when you take everything that has gone on and is going on in our country into account, like, again, I think the future is really difficult to predict. But what direction do you feel like this is heading? I guess, do you feel like it's positive? What, um, and, and what windows of opportunity or potential pitfalls do, do you see potentially on the horizon? I really think we're, and I'm not going to call it ruining bracket racing, but I think we're hurting bracket racing in a sense. Um, we paid 5000 to win at Carolina on a weekly race just to try to get the crowd in there. And we had a good crowd of cars. And then we had a 20 and a 10 at the end of the year, every year. And that was big. A 20 and a 10 now is laughed at. I got guys that tell me, I'm not going to go race for $10,000. Are you crazy? So you kind of started that mindset with some of those guys. And, and I don't like that because we all got to come back down to earth at some point because the, the spending is getting out of hand. You know, we, we can't have $4 million races in one year with the entry fees being, I, I don't know, $3,000, just say, each one. That's a lot of money for anybody. And you got guys rolling in there with five cars. You know, there's not many people that can stand that very long. No, I feel like for years now, we have kind of cultivated the divide in in – bracket racing specifically between say the local weekly bracket racer that is maybe perhaps cannot or or does not want to spend a ton of money now granted racing isn't cheap on any level right yep. contrasted with the the big dollar bracket racer who seemingly has more means or, 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 or more willingness to spend it it feels like that end of the spectrum continues to ramp up ramp up ramp up while the local scene, at least in a lot of areas, is suffering. And I don't know, I don't know what that looks like six months from now. I, I had hopes that this could actually strengthen this, this pandemic and resulting situation could strengthen the local bracket scene. To this point, what we've seen, kind of similar to what you said about having a, a spectator-driven event, right now initially it's a home run because we're all looking for someplace to go. We've seen that in bracket racing, really at all levels, but specifically at the big dollar level. And I think it's just going to be accentuated in a week and a half at the SFG million. Like I, I 
I get the sense that that's going to be overwhelmingly packed. Um, I don't know once we're removed from this, you know, period of restlessness for lack of a better term, I, d I have a hard time gauging what's going to be successful and what isn't. I don't know if those mega races continue to thrive. I don't know if people return to the local venues, those in-between races, which right now kind of seem lost in the shuffle, like to your point, 10, 20 grand, or you know, like if you've got, you've still got the, the crowd that kind of scoffs at the, the, the money end of that because it's, it's too rich for their blood. And then you've got the crowd that looks down on a 10 or 20 grand. They're like, ah, I'm not unloading my stuff for that. Like they fall in the middle where I think is a really dangerous zone. I don't know. I, I guess I have a difficult time putting my finger on the pulse of what could this look like a year from now? Do you have any predictions? Well, I can say this. I, in Orlando, if it wasn't in the middle of the rainy season right now, if I put on a 10, a 20 and a 10 next week and I advertise it for the last two months, I'd have 350 cars. I think that's what I'd have if you had it affordable. The million, the SFG million, the, the guaranteed million, and well, is the Cummins boys still in Memphis, wherever they're going now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, those races, there's – I always said this, and I'm probably going to catch backlash for it, but I've always said there's 12 guys that go to that race with their mindset that I'm going to win. There's 500 guys that go there and say, I just want to make the split. That's all I want to do. And Shelby, my oldest daughter being one of them, at the 500 at, at uh, Fall Fling last year, she's one round short of the split, which was 10 grand. She was sick to her stomach. And, she, and you know, she lost a fourth hour or something like that, lost a great race. So most every one of our racers – just trying to make the split. So how I see that is at some point we're all going back local because we just can't afford it. And I tend to think, I don't know that the big purses necessarily are, are more cause or more effect. I feel like the issue, big picture, long-term that, that bracket racing specifically has and you touched on it, is that we have allowed the costs to get out of hand, right? There's the, the cost of competition from the time that I was introduced to the sport to today. I guess not necessarily like you could enter a, a, a sportsman class car and, and not necessarily have more money tied up in it than you did 20, 30 years ago, you know, outside of the, the regular inflation. But I feel like the technology has advanced so significantly. There's way more out there. And now specifically at the higher levels, but this filters down to the local Saturday night. It's so much easier now just due to the amount of money that is that we are racing for at the highest levels. It's so easy to justify, well, hey, I'm going to spend $100,000 or whatever the case may be. Like I'm going to have the best of everything because I feel like and you, know, you can justify it in your mind. That gives me a slightly better chance to win this million dollar purse, this $50,000 purse, this $100,000 purse. So there's more of those vehicles and there's more, you know, extravagant support equipment. Like, I, I guess the fundamental of bracket racing is that you don't necessarily have to keep up with the Joneses. But when you look around the pits, like it's easy to feel like you need that stuff to compete. And I think as a result, we've 
we've raised the, the, the price of poker, so to speak, to the point that it's just simply not attainable for a lot of average people that might otherwise be interested in the sport. That's, that's correct. And you, you talk about keeping up with the Joneses. Go back, gosh, what? Just say maybe 0506, Troy, Gary, Jason, yourself. There were a handful of guys that just wore everybody out everywhere they went. Now you've got the Corey Galittis, Honey Wayne. you got all the young guys who are just wearing them out. And are they better racers than what Troy and Gary were? No. The equipment's that much better. Troy and Gary back then were really good racers who knew how to win. These days now, the equipment has made these younger guys such good racers as well that it's, it's just crazy. That's why you spend that $100,000 on the best equipment so that you can keep up with the Joneses. But it, it has to level off at some point because – like our local Saturday night bracket race last weekend, you know, there's guys out here that, I mean, not knocking them, but it's all they can do. And they're having a ball doing it. And if they're slow, their stuff's not very consistent, but they do the best they can with it. They're not going to go support that big race because they just know they don't have a chance. Yeah. Like I say, it feels like that divide between worlds is just getting bigger. And I don't, I don't know how sustainable that is for the sport. What is, what, I'm sure this is something that you think about on a regular basis. Like what can we do to combat that? As far as what keeping the. Yeah. Or perhaps it's, it's um, somehow de-incentivizing the, the huge dollar operations. I don't know if that's necessarily the answer, but um, making creating more incentive for those kind of lower budget introductory classes. I, I don't know that, that I feel yeah. like it's a, it's a, no matter which way you even pose the question, it feels biased and it feels impossible. And big money always, I hate to say it ruins every class. It always does. No matter what, I don't care if you're throwing dice, there's somebody going to big bully you. You know what I mean? It's just that it ruins it that way. And, how do we change it? Ah, man, I don't know. We, you and I discussed this off the air a little bit of, hey, I'm going to try to, in 2021, I'm going to try to make Orlando, Florida, the best stop on the bracket scene in the state of Florida and South Carolina and Georgia. I have a lot of ideas in my head that I won't speak on, obviously. But uh, there's lots of things I'm going to do that I think people are going to come in and go, we can race locally once a month for decent money have a great incentive at the end of the year and not have to spend all this money traveling. Now, if you want to go hit the fall fling or the spring fling or something, those are cool races. That's different. You know, you want to catch one of those. You don't have to go every week chasing 50 grand. Right. Yeah. So it's making that local program more valuable incentivizing right. it more. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that there's a ton of value there and I tend to, this stuff all, if you look back over the, the, the history of probably any type of competition, but specifically to, to bracket racing, like it's very cyclical, you know, I mean, we, we go through phases where there's 
a ton of big dollar races and they blow up, blow up, blow up. And to the point that there's so many of them that they get watered down and they don't get the attendance and then they just kind of all go away and there's only a handful of races and they're massively attended because there's the supply or the demand outweighs the supply and, and it just cycles back around to, I like the point that you brought up earlier, like event ultimately money's what kills every class because when you, if you think back from a historical perspective, that's why bracket racing was developed in the first place because the deeper pockets were running away from in, in class racing and the, the yep. guys that couldn't necessarily compete were looking for another avenue. And it feels as though, and I think the trajectory is a little bit slower and I, I hate to be just a, a negative Nancy and a, and a naysayer, but it feels like we're cultivating that similar um, disparity in, in, in bracket racing. And it, does concern me for the for the future of the sport that I love and, and that you love. Oh, absolutely, and and I, something else that, and I, I'm sitting here kicking myself where I want to even open up this can of worms. But um, another thing that money creates is cheating, and Lord knows that's been a big topic. <laughs> yes, it has. I, I'm not going to delve into it too much because I'm working with two people um, that own timing system companies that to try to combat that a little bit. Specifically I mean, on the, on the tree sensor end of things, or I know that that's the hot button topic these days. Um, yeah. On a lot of different areas. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, and it's cheating. There's cheating out there. It's just what form of it is. Are, are we seeing it? Because I mean, our rule books in bracket racing are so wide open and gray. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, everybody hollers about the drive shaft sensors. You don't need to be looking there, guys. You don't need to be looking there at all. Mm -hmm. um, I hear it all the time. I remember going to the five-day in Bradenton way back when, and, and uh, you got to unhook that drive shaft sensor if you don't run here. I was like, okay. You know, and – I promise you, I'm the last one you got to worry about because people crash into each other trying to follow me to the staging lanes. I suck so bad. So, <laughs> But anyway, um, there's a lot of areas that there's some questionable things going on. And, you know, I, do I think most everybody's cheating? No. Do I think? Well, I'll leave that alone. I'll just leave that alone. Well, it's interesting, too, because you bring up a good point. I do feel like specific to big dollar bracket racing, because as you mentioned, there's a lot of gray, what rules we do have are, are not particularly consistent or um, uh, specific in a lot of cases, relatively vague. I do think that there is uh, potential for, for both quote unquote cheating and unethical behavior. And I think that those two circles overlap, but aren't necessarily one in the same. <laughs> I'm curious, you've been on, again, both ends of this, you've put on a lot of, of, of big dollar bracket races from an event um, promotion or, or event management um, perspective, like what, what are you most concerned about? Like, I guess perhaps what would be the worst case scenario and what do you, what have you tried to enforce and or how do you go about policing it? Mm. That's so hard to answer. Um, every car out there can go dead on because every converter and transmission company is so on top of technology today. Mickey Thompson, Hoosier, they all make 
an awesome tire. Uh, the MSD, there's so many things you can do with it. You know, it's it's so wide open right now. I, I just I don't want to say too much. I don't want to open up too many things, but um, I think we got to look closely at at the starting line area, obviously. But um, I, I don't I ain't gonna say a whole lot about it because I'm I don't want to give anything I'm doing away. So no, it's difficult because I feel like, and at least publicly and, and maybe it's because I, I get to see a little bit behind the scenes I feel like for years Pete and Kyle have been the the best at this specifically just as racers really analyzing the the run sheets right and just yep. looking out for things that jump out as like whoa this this doesn't make a lot of sense right but to your point I feel like the precision in our sport has come so far that I think that's harder to decipher than ever. Like freaking 80% of the field's going dead on every yes. run or every other run. You know what I mean? So there's stuff that I don't think throws up the red flag that it used to. I think it would be more difficult to identify in that regard. And then on the tree too, I mean, you look back at a run sheet and so-and-so was uh, 19 out of 20 rounds. They were double O. Like we've seen people that can do that. And it's yes. funny because you see people that do that and then you just laud them. And then you see people that you just have a different perception of and you're like, that dude's up to something. Ain't no way he could do that. <laughs> well, what, what's the difference, you know? So I just feel like now probably more than ever, if anything is going to come about, like it, it feels like you almost have to catch the culprit red-handed. I mean, do you agree? Is there more to it? Uh I tell you what I like to see that that kind of tells me, yep, I was thinking right or no, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. Take yourself and put you in your car and you're double O 12 times. You jump in my car and you're 30, 10 of the times. You, you know, it's mm -hmm. I, you and I both know driving that within a couple hits, we can be back where we should be double O wise. You know, and, and if, if you can't go jump in somebody else's car and be somewhat close to what you were in your car within a couple of runs, I think that says something's going on. That's fair. Um, I'm not saying it's cheating, but obviously you're comfortable in your car. But, you know, if you're if you jump from car to car and, and you're kick butt, you know, we, we've seen Peter do that, jump from super stock to stock, and he's just – but Peter's just bad to the bone. I mean, he yeah, swears he's, he's not, but he's not a, he's not a good comparison. He's, that's he's, correct. he's superhuman. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he is. Exactly. You know, and, and I, I like some of the announcers at the, um, I think wherever it was Jed talking to, uh, one of the guys and he asked him, he says, so, you know, you just run that semifinal there. What you think you were? And he said, Oh, I was at least 10. He said, well, that's a pretty good call. You were nine. That to me tells me the guy's decently got an idea of where he's at. That's true. You know? mm -hmm. Now I think uh, if we're going back in time, and I know we we first talked about getting on together talking about uh, at story time, but I when I was like 18 years old, I still think it's the reason that Troy Williams Jr. and I are such good friends because I think I earned his infinite respect. I I won a 
a 20 grander the last day of the million and there was very few people that stuck around to watch it but troy and gary were two of them and when i came back up the return road he, he stopped me before i got my ticket and he's like what were you and what'd you take and I, I told him within a couple thousand on both runs, and he's like, I like this guy. <laughs> I mean, like, it's like I, I validated myself to him, you know? Yeah. Troy, uh, right after my dad passed away in 03, we were having a and I'm pretty sure it was. And um, Troy, Troy knew back then that TSI timing systems never added up, ever. They're always a foul or two off. But back then, a lot of guys didn't look close at that. Sure. Troy come up in the tower. He said, um, I got a problem with my ticket. And I was like, what, Troy? And he's like, no, man, it don't add up. Add it up. And I'm gullible and stupid. And I'm like, shit, Troy, you tell me how to add it up. I don't know, man. So he sits down with me and says, look, let me teach you something here. And, he, and we go through the whole ticket, you know. And, and keep in mind, I'm 26 years old or something like that at the time. And um, he said, TSI is never going to add up. He said, they're always going to be one or two thou off. He said, if you get a good racer that knows that, he's going to take advantage of it. He said, so you need to be ready for that. He said, I know you're going to be doing this a long time, and I want you to learn something from it. And I've always respected Troy for that ever since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and some things never change. They still don't add up. So. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, man, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time here. This has been tremendous food for thought as with any time that, that we get together to, to record a podcast I won't claim to, to have any answers but tend to, to this conversation has made me think a lot and question a lot of things hopefully it's done the same for, for our listeners and, uh, and provide a little bit of, uh, of ammunition for a little bit deeper investigation before I, uh, before I turn you loose here is there anything that, uh, that you want to share or any, anything that you need to plug well you know I I'm in Orlando now. Come see us is all I'm gonna say because I'm trying to put together a I'm trying to put together a winter series for the guys to go back to how it was way back when. I know that's Ooh. something that's that a lot of guys like. Um, I'll be honest with you, Ozzy owns South Georgia, mm-hmm. he owns Orlando, you know, we have Bradenton right here beside us, we have Palm Beach, we have Immokalee. I wanna put together a a winter series deal that goes from South Georgia to Orlando to Bradenton or uh, Palm Beach. I haven't worked all the details out, but I think that would be a really great deal for the guys up north that just want to get out and go back to Highwood. We used to have a ball doing that, man. It was a lot of fun. And, oh, God, Randy Folk. I'll never forget him as long as I live. It, it, him and uh, the guy in the yellow Camaro, Ricky Jones, that always ran eighth mile stuff. Hmm. He, do his burnout and he was staged before you ever even started your burnout. It still does. You know, th- yeah, th- you know, those were the days that were a lot of fun back then. You know, it's just different day and age, but why can't we bring that back? That's the things I want to do. So bear with I, us. Uh, get on board. I, I think I speak for, for hundreds of racers and saying that that sounds very intriguing. I've got personally a lot of great memories from the winter series. And I feel like I came into it when it was, kind of on the downhill slide like I missed the heyday you know the the generation yeah. before me has great stories from uh whether it's you know Orlando Bradenton Moroso anywhere along the the winter series that that would be phenomenal if you guys could get that ball rolling again well I'm working on it tirelessly so stay tuned that's all I'm gonna say 
Awesome. Well, Jeff, man, I appreciate you uh, you coming on and sharing some uh, perspective and some wisdom with us here on the podcast. Best of luck uh, in everything at Orlando, and obviously uh, keep us posted as that comes to fruition. Uh, we would love to, uh, to talk about the Winter Series resuming. Awesome. Thank you, Luke. Jed and I are proud to partner with Bill Taylor Enterprises. That's BTE here within the podcast. Neither of us, Jed or myself, are strangers to BTE products, services, or customer service. I've personally been using BTE transmissions and converters exclusively since 1998. Um, That's 20 years. BTE has quite literally powered every race, every championship, every round that I've won for my entire adult life. My point, they build products that I depend on. BTE builds products that Jed depends on. BTE builds products that you can depend on. Whether it's a complete top dragster or, or top sportsman power glide transmission, a torque converter designed for your specific combination, or any transmission component or bolt-on item, the folks at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed in today's ultra-competitive world of sportsman drag racing. Shop online at BTE Racing. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And, and, And you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing uh, our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest uh, edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Listen up. June 26th through the 28th, IHRA will host a double Sportsman Spectacular at US 131 Motorsports Park in Martin, Michigan. $5,000 payouts in both top and modified, along with big checks, Ironman, round prizes, track points, and the ever-popular golf cart race. Those are just some of the exciting features of the US 131 event. Uh, As we mentioned in today's show, many of you, I'm sure, headed to US 131 for the SFG 1.1 million. This is essentially going to serve as a warm-up race. This is the week prior. So get in, get settled, get some track time. Uh, Along with top and modified, the US 131 event will also feature junior dragsters, motorcycles, and a sportsman class. You can find all the relevant details over at IHRA.com.
Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.